0: Build it and they will come. Silicon Valley unleashed the technology that gives anyone the chance to be famous on social media platforms and content creators accepted the challenge. They are revolutionizing the entertainment industry, disrupting legacy institutions, empowering marginalized communities and demolishing modern capitalism itself according to my guest today, Taylor Taylor Lorenz. She's the tech columnist for the Washington Post. And her new book is about the rise of social media from the user's side and how their content is shaping platforms like TikTok and Instagram while shaping us too. The book is called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence and Power on the Internet. And Taylor Lorenz joins me now. Hi. Hi.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We had a big victory in our national election on Saturday night, and one of the analysts says it all came down to TikTok. Does that surprise you?
1: No, absolutely not. I think TikTok is playing an increasingly large role in politics. I've written a lot about that, and I've mentioned it actually in my book as well, um, just how it's shaping the political system globally
0: fair to say in future an elect uh, a party political party won't be able to succeed succeed without understanding and um, participating in TikTok.
1: Oh absolutely yeah I think that it's become a primary communication tool for um, you know tens if not hundreds of millions of people um, and so it's really yeah I think even not necessarily that the candidate themselves have to be on it but that's where the narratives are made these days.
0: Well, congratulations on your book. It seems a very 20th century place to share your ideas about the online world but so why do this project and why go old school for it?
1: I know. It's very funny. It's like the most print thing I've ever worked on but um, <laughs> you know, one thing actually in researching the history of the internet um, that I discovered is actually there's it's a lot of it has been lost to time. A lot of websites degrade over time or people stop paying the hosting fees, the blogs, you know, go out of date and so there's not really a good historical record of a lot of the early internet and a lot of the social media world so i wanted to kind of get it all down um in a way to uh yeah just to to have some sort of record of this crazy time
0: your job is to take social media seriously do you think legacy media companies have been slow to do that
1: yes (laughs) they've been so slow very very slow um I think a lot of them are unfortunately still sort of in denial um, about <laughs> how much the internet reshaped our uh, our media climate, and and it and it's a shame because I'm a big believer in legacy media. I mean, I think it's really important to have these um, journalistic institutions that have the resources to do you know in-depth journalism because that's very hard to reproduce on the internet. So I, I'm. I write about a lot of this stuff and I work at a legacy media organization in hopes to try to kind of bring them into the 21st century.
0: Can you explain this phrase extremely online? What is that and, and how many people do you think it applies to?
1: Gosh, more and more of us these days. Uh, the reason I decided to title that my book is it's it's become this sort of um, catchphrase for people. Often it's used as a way to describe people that are almost like too online. Um but I actually think all of us are increasingly extremely online and our world is increasingly extremely online and we live in this internet mediated world. Um, so
0: are they still different things? The online and offline worlds, um, do they operate separately in parallel or is there, has there been a total convergence between the two?
1: I would argue that the online world is increasingly our default reality. And um, I mean, it's just true. Um, and then, you know, the, the real world is relevant in the sense that it's like almost a stage for the internet, for things to play out on the internet.
0: We think of creators of technology as the ones driving this, but I wonder if part of your research shows that actually users figured out how to use some of the social media, even before the creators of the technology did.
1: Yeah, that's a really core theme of my book is just actually these, um, just the way that content creators, um, revolutionize platforms and shape social platforms uh for good and for bad um i think time and time again we see that these silicon valley tech geniuses or people that are held up as tech geniuses um you know create this technology with no understanding of how it will be used or what it will eventually become
0: has social media actually fulfilled that original promise uh, the promise of the internet to give anyone a platform with no gatekeepers
1: um well i think i mean it sort of started to um definitely in the early aughts i think like i write a, a lot about the rise of blogging and it was very much um sort of towards that i think unfortunately the system we have now um is is more just a, a new gatekeepers where now these silicon valley tech platforms are the date gatekeepers so sure you no longer have to go through traditional hollywood or traditional media to like access an audience but you do have to go through facebook youtube Instagram, TikTok, these big platforms that almost act as the new legacy gatekeepers.
0: Women are, are sort of the OG influencers online, the mommy bloggers. And when we talk tech, it's so often about the men, the, the Mark Zuckerbergs, Elon Musk and Bill Gates of the world. I wonder if that's a, a new kind of um, example of women being written out of history, as they have been for centuries. Perhaps they've been ridden out of tech history too, as content creators.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this core theme of my book is really talking about women's role in the internet and how women built this half a trillion dollar content creator industry that's been completely written off by Silicon Valley, I think, because it's female driven and female built. Um, And I think people don't take a lot of what women, especially young women, do seriously. Um, But teen girls, you know, uh, have the power to radically transform the internet. They're the ones that made all the social media apps successful, primarily. So... um, yeah, I a lot of what I wanted to do in my book is kind of not tell a whole women's history of the internet, but I think it kind of almost ends up being that way because of um, just the role, yeah, the role that women play. Yeah,
0: what is it about those mommy bloggers that got the ball rolling on what is now a multi-billion dollar influencer industry?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, initially, um, these women, uh, these Gen X mothers turned to the internet and to blogging. Um, as a way to kind of express themselves. There was no money uh, to be made at that time initially. They, of course, eventually did make money, but um, they really wanted to challenge traditional media. It was about, um, you know, poking holes in these narratives of motherhood that were presented in these glossy women's magazines that didn't talk about these difficult Mm -hmm. issues like struggling to breastfeed or postpartum depression, all these things that mommy bloggers
0: normalized. And now kids, of course, are used by their parents for videos. I mean, you know, we had child actors growing oh. up in the 80s. Has the online world c- caught up in terms of the rules around using kids in this way? Well, they're not a strong using kids. Word? The,
1: <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, I would, let's not forget that the vast, 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 vast majority of content, the, I mean, like, I would, I'm totally throwing out numbers guessing, but as somebody that reports on this, I would guess probably 98% of um, content featuring kids on the internet is content that children themselves have put uh, uh-huh. on the, you know, you see kids under the age of 13, trying to sign up for social media accounts. Obviously kids can join social media as, as young as 13, um, but a lot joined years before that. Um, and so, you know, I think kids have been drinking the Kool-Aid fed to them by these tech companies saying, you know, put yourself online, commodify yourself, become an influencer, et cetera. And um, so, you know, yeah, do some parents have sh- poor boundaries around privacy and their kids online? Sure. You know, I think a lot of, um, you know, dads and moms and teachers and little league coaches, you know, maybe might think twice before posting pictures of their kids online. But again, the vast majority of kids content on the Internet is children posting their themselves online.
0: Although you could make the argument that they can't really consent. They can't really understand the implications of what they are doing. And so But no one can
1: I mean, no, no one can like, I mean, that's true of any age, right? That doesn't, you don't have to be a child to not consent to, or, you know, to not think critically or understand the ramifications of having yourself put on the internet. I just, I mean, look at what the big trend the past couple of years where people just film strangers for content, right? And you generally (laughs) don't get their consent. Like, it doesn't make that okay because they're adults. I think we all need better norms around privacy. But when we think about, you know, the stuff of kids on the internet, I think we need to just be very clear that it's not their parents that are the problem here. The problem is the tech companies selling this bi- bit of bill of goods to children who, you're right, are way too young to understand that huh. it's a lie and um, that these these you know decisions to set up a YouTube channel, for instance, when you're 11 years old, can have real ramifications.
0: I'm talking to Taylor Lorenz, tech columnist for The Washington Post. Her book is called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence and Power on the Internet. Um, You mentioned before that when Mommy Blogging started, authenticity ruled it was a nice, refreshing change from what people were being served up by the magazines. How are we doing with authenticity? Um, Is what we're seeing online largely authentic? Does it matter? Have we forgotten what authenticity looks like?
1: I don't even know what authenticity means these days because, huh. I mean, I think, yes, I, I think in some ways things are more authentic these days because the barrier to creation has been lowered. And there was this big sort of backlash against hyper curated content that really started in 2019. But all, you know, we're all performing for each other all day, right? <laughs> um, like, even like performing authenticity. Like, I see people, you know, doing these tiktoks where they're very authentic or they're crying on camera but you still see the ring light you know reflection in their eyes it's like you know, i don't know how authentic any of it is
0: what happened when a requirement started in america to label paid content on instagram does that change anything
1: yeah um i talk about this in the book but in 2017 the federal trade commission which is this regulating government regulating body, body um Actually made uh, made this ruling saying that influencers had to disclose sponsored content, and so you saw all these articles saying, "Oh, this is the end of the content creator industry because now they're going to have to disclose sponsored content." But what happened is it actually made it aspirational. Once all these big content creators started to reveal their brand deals, um, their followers actually started to think it's very cool that they got brand deals and started to, um, yeah, consider it this aspirational thing. Um, so hmm. it kind of backfired.
0: <laughs> Um, looking back on some of those early influencer pioneers, how have they fared? The internet has always been a bit of a cruel place. Um, what is their story?
1: Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been especially cruel to women. Um, I think it's been, it's been, yeah, it's been very hard. Um, some, a lot have quit, a lot have left. Um, most, I would say most early internet content creators have burned out and left. It's just, It's a very hard, um, it's just a very hard business to be in, um, you know, over time. And so I think any kind of business that, that, you know, deals with fame and influence and money and power, it's just, it's hard. And these these platforms evolve and it's hard for content creators to keep up. And I think there's various, you know, the mental health aspects of being online all the time and having to create content online are
0: significant. If anyone can be famous now, does that change the currency of fame?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I just think fame itself has become kind of its own currency, like online attention at least has been. Um, There used to be these very clear delineations between who was famous and who wasn't. You know, you had A-listers and B-listers and D-listers. And now, you know, everyone is kind of has different levels of micro fame, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah. And the most famous are often the most extreme. Um, Now, partly that's the algorithm, right? That gets the blame for rewarding extremes. But there are people who are doing more and more extreme things to get bigger followings, the prank videos. Um, It's not just the technology, right? It's us too. Well, the technology is serving our presumably deepest desires and fears. Yeah,
1: no, you're 100% correct. Um, It's I mean, I think the algorithms definitely undeniably encourage extremism and extreme sort of hateful content, violative, like, you know, the algorithms definitely add to it. But, um, you know, we are all victims to this ecosystem ourselves. And I think all of us are kind of pressured to up the ante of our content or not exaggerate online. But, you know, we're all very conscious of our online kind of personas and um I think that's, yeah, it's just increasingly the world that we live in.
0: When one particular platform is huge, it's hard to imagine a world in which it's not, right? When Facebook was everything, I mean, I thought that was it. Um, are there are there lessons to be learned, though, from platforms that have failed? Um, platforms like Vine and MySpace that were big um, for a while, you know, I mean, where did they go wrong?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean... MySpace was really just too early. I think the lesson of MySpace was timing. Um, At that point, their their philosophy on social media ultimately ended up being proved correct. And the way that uh, MySpace sort of positioned itself was ultimately very similar to how TikTok would position itself 20 years later, but they were too early. Um, And I think with Vine, the big lesson is um, that you need to listen to your user base and content creators and Mm -hmm they were too slow to do that. They ended up alienating a lot of their biggest content creators. And when they all left the platform, it really kind of crippled the app and it never recovered.
0: People have been very keen to pronounce Twitter dead ever since Elon Musk took over. What is your view on where that is uh, now called X? Um, is it is it the walking dead?
1: Yeah, it pretty much is. Um, I mean, I think that it's just it's a non-functional platform elon as i wrote recently in the atlantic uh did not learn any lessons from um from twitter um or sorry from any of these other tech companies that came before twitter and elon has a very hostile relationship with his own user base and sort of refuses to learn the lessons of vine Mm -hmm. and all these other apps that didn't listen to their content creators
0: how is threads doing that was um in the news briefly for about 48 hours
1: yeah, Threads is struggling too. I mean, the issue with Threads is content moderation. Threads actually has gone way, way overboard to the point that they're blocking dozens and dozens of newsworthy words from Threads. Huh. Um, so for instance, you can't even search the words long COVID or COVID, which is a huge problem as I reported recently um, for the millions suffering with long COVID still. I mean, we are in a at least in America, we're in a big COVID surge right now and people can't get access to information about the new vaccines, people can't get access to information about long COVID treatments because Threads has blocked those words. Um, Threads also blocked the word porn, which I think people would think, oh, well, that's maybe reasonable, but it's not because now it's censored um, stories about revenge porn, for instance, and what women have gone through. So I think Threads is a good example of of what happens when you take these blunt moderation tools too far. Um, by just wholesale blocking words from search. I think it's it will never be a platform for news as long as they're doing
0: that. Yeah, so hard to get it right, isn't it? So what is TikTok doing right?
1: I mean, what TikTok does really well is discovery. Um, unlike these other social platforms based on sort of followers, you don't have to have a single follower to go viral on TikTok, nor do you have to follow anyone on the app for the app to be entertaining. You just sort of are met with this t- constant and ending feed of algorithmically uh, delivered content that's tailored to your exact interests, And so, um, yeah, I think they've really nailed discovery.
0: Mm. So can't does traditional media have any chance, um, you know, traditional media values facts, um, but it's competing with contents on the internet that has no rules. Can it compete?
1: Um, you know, I hope so <laughs> because I work in traditional media, but, yeah, me too. uh, yeah, increasingly, no. I mean, it's just very hard because, I mean, there's very, very little media literacy. So while a journalist will, you know, see a TikTok video and say, okay, well, that's commentary, that's not even a reported fact, most people on the internet cannot distinguish the difference between commentary and reporting. They can't. They don't even know the difference between an opinion article and a reported article. So, um, and the, and the, the traditional media constantly lets the public down, I think, by not being more transparent about, you know, how news gathering and educating their readers, you know, on how stories come to be and making their journalists accessible, for instance. Um, So I don't know. I think we're in a definitely a sticky situation right now.
0: Are we entering a new era of creator culture with the rise of AI?
1: Yeah, I think AI is definitely supercharging the content creator industry. Um, When you look at... um, you know how it's affecting things. I think content. I, I think social media. Um, you know, really lowered the barrier to content creation. Um, and AI lowers it even further. So I think it's going to be easier than ever to create content and become a content creator.
0: Here's a tough one for you, Taylor. Has social media been net positive for the world?
1: Um, you know, I think that the internet has been a net positive for the world. I think certain platforms, for instance, Facebook and Twitter, um, have been probably net negatives. Um, but, you know, a lot of other platforms have been amazing. And, and I mean, Twitter in its current state, I think Twitter in its previous state was a net positive. Um, and I think Facebook in its current state is also a net negative. But previously in 2007 was a net positive. So, you know, I think it depends on how these platforms evolve. Um, a lot of them have evolved to be net negatives, because they don't really care about protecting democracy or serving their users. They really just care about exploiting every single one of their users for maximum ad revenue Mm. and they've been very irresponsible with their platforms
0: yeah and i think lots of our listeners will be thinking well hang on i have a good time on facebook i see pictures of my um grandchildren um share what i've been up to on vacation um interestingly someone i spoke to a few months ago pointed out that actually non-english facebook is much much different to the facebook we know have you come across that
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, I've reported on Facebook's effects globally, but let's not forget that Facebook, you know, has contributed to genocide in other countries and political coups and really bad stuff. I mean, the disinformation problem on Facebook and the way that Facebook has sort of decimated the news industry, um, I think it's been really harmful. I mean, look at what's happening in Canada now where Facebook's cutting off access to news and information during really critical moments, like, for instance, during a wildfire. Um So I, you know, I don't think Facebook's been responsible with this platform. I think it's great that individual users, sure, maybe it's a net positive in your particular life, um, but that doesn't mean that it's a net positive for the world or global democracy.
0: And finally, as you know, our former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is part of the Christchurch call, working to build a better internet with less hate and less bullying. Is that possible, do you think? Can we legislate for being better to each other online?
1: I don't think that's something that you can legislate. I think it's a cultural problem that we need to change cultural norms around how we treat each other and um, build more collective societies. I don't think you can like moderate and force everybody to be nice to each other. I think it's more about um, collectivism and, and kind of setting, you know, the expectation that we treat each other with humanity. And again, I think those are more cultural issues than they are Facebook social media issues.
0: Well, thank you for your contribution to the conversation. Uh, The book is called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence and Power on the Internet. And I've been speaking to Washington Post columnist Taylor Lorenz. Thanks, Taylor.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.